0: Engineers in Silicon Valley see a world of constant progress. Our work is creative and intellectually challenging. We are building the future, and we are getting compensated quite well for it. But what if we are actually achieving far less than what is possible? What if, after so many years of high margins and gourmet lunch and self-flattery, we've lowered our standards for innovation? And if Silicon Valley has been lulled into complacency, What does that say about the rest of the United States? American exceptionalism has faltered, and complacency has risen in its wake. Today's guest, Tyler Cowen, is an economist and author. His new book, The Complacent Class, is the final book in a trilogy that describes a decline of American output and a decline in American mindset. Complacent America has lost its ability to assess risk. Children are prevented from playing tag for risk of injury. College students protest against speakers who might present challenging ideas. The number of Americans under 30 who own a business has fallen by 65% since the 1980s. Millennials are too busy going to business school to start businesses. In his books, Tyler weaves together history, philosophy, and contemporary culture. He presents hard data about many different fields, and he theorizes about how the trends in those fields relate to each other. He also has a podcast, Conversations with Tyler. And in this episode, I tried to mirror his interview style. If you like this episode, you should check out his show. He's interviewed people like Ezra Klein, Peter Thiel, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Cowan is an economist and author, most recently of The Complacent Class. Tyler, welcome to Software Engineering
1: Daily. Thank you for having me.
0: Your new book The Complacent Class is the third book of a trilogy. It follows The Great Stagnation and Averages Over, and your first two books describe a decline in American output. The Complacent Class describes a decline in American mindset, and this mindset decline is both a cause and a result of the decline in American output that you described in your first two books. Can you explain how the complacent class relates to your first two books?
1: Uh, That's a good description. I think of the key question behind all of the books is simply, what has gone wrong with America? Why are so many people disappointed with at least some aspects of what they're seeing? So The Great Stagnation looked at the angle, why has productivity growth gone down? Average is Over looked at the angle, why has income inequality gone up? And the latest book, The Complacent Class, is what are the intellectual and ideological and sociological reasons for everything that's been happening? And the key notion is that people are more risk-averse and they try to make their individual lives safer. But the net effect of that, taken collectively, is to make society less dynamic. And in the longer run, that's responsible for a lot of our basic problems.
0: The punchline of... The title, The Complacent Class, is that the complacent class is every class. There are coastal elites who are mistaking bureaucracy and financial manipulation as productivity gains. There's an upper middle class that is content with ever-improving entertainment. And there's a lower class that has basically given up hope. So why did you call this book The Complacent Class rather than The Complacent Generation?
1: Well, I didn't call it the complacent generation because I think a lot of the trends have been running for 30 or 40 years, and they're not the result of the fault or the flaws of a single generation. Uh, I think the notion that we, when it comes to complacency, all belong to the same class is precisely what is startling to people, and I wanted to play that up in the title. Is
0: complacency a choice that America is making, or have we been lulled into a a national trance that is not entirely our fault, like North Korea.
1: Initially, it was a choice. But now we've so restricted our dynamism, so many individuals are hedged in, and they don't really have a choice necessarily to take more risk. There are ways they could take more risk, but that would simply be stupid or foolhardy. So as time passes, it becomes less and less of a choice.
0: As you write, Complacency, quote, involves people making decisions that are at first glance in their best interests, but the effects of these decisions at the societal level are not always good. I'm a young software engineer. If I work a comfortable desk job and I spend my evenings browsing social media and entertaining myself, is my complacency hurting society?
1: Well, in the short run, probably not very much. But compare that to being a software engineer who strikes out and starts a new business, which people are doing at lower rates than before, I might add. In the longer run, that will create more jobs. It will mean more tax revenue. We'll be able to pay for our retirements more easily. It'll mean more social mobility for other people. So when enough of us choose the complacent route, it significantly narrows the options of other people in society. One
0: dimension of this complacency thesis is the idea that Americans have stopped creating and you just enumerated that. And this includes software engineers, even though software engineers listening to this show might dispute that. We feel like we're creating every day. Describe the contrast you see between the creative cadence of Americans today and the creative cadence that they had in a better time in our past.
1: Well, just to be clear, I do think tech is by far our most dynamic sector, and Silicon Valley has done some pretty wonderful things. But if you compare it to the America of earlier in the 20th century, in that time we had other big advances in communications, such as radio and television, but we also were inventing cars and airplanes and laying an interstate highway system and developing antibiotics. Today the efficacy of antibiotics is running in reverse, We talk more about repairing our infrastructure than striking out on new ventures. Uh, We've stopped exploring outer space. And we're still at times flying planes that were designed in the very late 1960s. So, you know, I wish more of our economy was like the tech sector. I would make this other point that a lot of our tech innovations, they're very good for your leisure time, but they don't make us more productive. So you can sit at home and watch Netflix and Amazon will bring almost anything to your door. And that's comfortable. You might say it's complacent, uh, but it's arguably limiting our productivity in some ways.
0: Is it limiting the productivity for everybody? Because I feel like personally I can leverage Amazon and have more time in my day. And assuming I am less complacent in my everyday mindset, then that's good. I can leverage that extra time.
1: That's correct. So it's not limiting productivity for everyone. But if you look at how much are Americans working as a whole, what's our labor force participation rate? Overall, even adjusting for age, fewer of us are working than we used to. Uh, And I think in general, people are holding more safe assets. They're starting fewer new businesses. So the net effect, I think, has been quite ambiguous, even innovations coming from tech. The business
0: leaders of Silicon Valley have a range of levels of optimism. Presumably, they're seeing the same technology. They're seeing the same trends. What contributes to their differences in opinion?
1: Well, I think some of them live in a bit of a bubble. So they hang out with other tech leaders and tech workers, and that is a pretty dynamic world. I think within the tech world in the Bay Area, there's an overemphasis on different ways of accelerating the flow of information. And what we need to do is be making our physical world more productive. And tech is only now starting to help us do that. So again, I'm a big admirer of the tech world and tech CEOs. But I do think they somewhat overrate their own importance.
0: How quickly are you seeing the technology influence on the physical world compound into gains that can be measured in the kinds of metrics that you look at?
1: Well, it's not as quick as it should be. Uh, one example I'm sure you know about is driverless cars, which really can work. And with some tweaks, you know, they, they do work now. Uh, but then you have to look at various questions. How long will it be before a liability law is in place, before they're regulated in the proper way, before each town, county, state and federal government have figured out exactly how to handle them? That could add another you know, 10, 20 years onto the transition point. So it's another example of us just not finding innovation that urgent anymore. But of course, they'll save plenty of lives. It will be a tremendous advance once we have them. The tech people are not the obstacle. It's the legal and regulatory side.
0: And this legal and regulatory side, do you see technology being able to contribute to an overcoming of the ossification in those areas anytime soon?
1: Not anytime soon. Just the simple question, if there's an accident with a driverless vehicle, who is liable? And uh, do states and the federal government treat that in a more or less consistent way? Uh, Tech will not help us solve that problem. Just getting every understaffed local government to treat a driverless vehicle passing through its town roads in a more or less consistent way You know, it took a long time with the automobile. Autos worked for about 40 years before they really transformed American life. And that's sad. And we're looking at the same for driverless cars. You were alive before the Internet. What was that like? It was an amazing world where you were forced to travel through physical space on a very frequent basis to get almost anything you wanted, to learn almost anything. It was extremely inconvenient. But it was a wonderful experience and I actually feel I'm greatly privileged to have lived in both worlds.
0: I guess I was born when there was technically the internet, the government version of the internet that was more insurance against nuclear holocaust or partial nuclear holocaust than a communication and entertainment network. Um, that brings me to a, a point that I wasn't planning on asking you, but there's this notion of the open internet, and this is discussed in, in debates around net neutrality, but I feel like when people talk about the open internet, it's almost this thing that has never really existed. It's this nostalgic uh, idea that that doesn't that hasn't really existed, and the idea of the internet has just evolved from insurance against uh, a nuclear bomb to... AOL to internet browsers to Facebook and Netflix, and it's this ever shifting thing. And eventually, it'll be something that is closely integrated with our physical world. But do you think that the idea of the nostalgia, like the nostalgia for the internet, uh, perhaps as uh, uh, epitomized by the open internet, do you think this is a, uh, like an illusion that people have?
1: I do. Everyone has, you know, some year where internet was peak internet. I've heard some bloggers (laughs) say, well, it was 2006. (laughs) Then you have a much smaller group of people say, no, it was Usenet groups, you know, way back when. Uh, I'm not sure there's a, a way to make those comparisons. I would say what the internet has done for us so far is a bit overrated. Maybe what it will do for us in the longer run is a bit underrated.
0: Talk more about that. What are the things
1: that are underrated right now? The idea that by knitting people together... We make business production more efficient. Everyone thinks that's happened, but it hasn't when you look at the numbers. Productivity in this country used to go up by 2 to 3% a year. And in the last few decades, typically it goes up by 1% to 1.5% a year. So there's some way in which, you know, the internet is Facebook. Okay, that's nice. Uh, the internet is about visiting Twitter. The internet is about buying things on Amazon. But somehow using that to restructure our whole economy mostly lies in the future.
0: Is that a criticism of the internet or a criticism of the ways that we're trying to measure the productivity of the internet?
1: I don't think it's a criticism of either. I think it's a criticism of the fact that so much of American business was not ready for the internet. They treated the internet as a kind of add-on. Like here, we have a workplace. Now our employees are going to email each other, which again (laughs) is fine. But the idea that the internet ultimately will be at the center of so many different activities, such as say, education or healthcare, we're very, very far from realizing that, and if I'm blaming anyone, you know it's really the non-internet related businesses most of all.
0: What does an ed- a, a internet-centric education model, for example, look like rather than the uh, internet bolt-on education model?
1: Well, human beings are great at motivating other human beings and they're great at serving as role models and coaches and sources of inspiration. I'm not sure there are efficient ways of just sending information back and forth. Uh, The internet does a much better job of that, whether you're reading text or using search or viewing video. So I think the future of education is you start with the internet and you have a small number of coaches and they guide you through a learning experience, sometimes in small groups. Uh, Higher education, it hasn't actually changed that much yet due to the internet. In due time, it will, but still it hasn't.
0: I remember you talked about this sum in averages over the idea of the Chinese tutorial model being a leading indicator for how coaching might work in the future if I'm if I'm remembering that properly is that accurate
1: Well if you think of the key role of the human being is as to provide inspiration often that's best done through tutoring so I think somewhat counterintuitively The continuing rise of the Internet in education also will boost the tutor. So it's tutor plus Internet that I think is much more effective than having people sit, say, in classes of 200 and more or less, you know, nod off and they might as well not be there. That's what doesn't make sense. That's the system we're still locked into.
0: If I recall my most influential teachers, it was not necessarily their ability to articulate or reiterate information to me as it was their ability to have the right amount of encouragement, uh, basically be able to guide me through a way of looking at the information that was available in the domain that they were an expert in. Uh, I guess that's a kind of coaching.
1: Exactly. And, you know, do the top universities reward professors on that basis? Not very much. And that's what I think we need more of. And then they point you to places on the internet give you a kind of vision of how one learns or why learning is important. And that's when I feel education could become much more productive.
0: Much of your book is about the idea that American institutions are increasingly focused on enforcing safety and security to the individual. But your thesis is that this isn't working and that the costs are massive. And we could certainly talk about the university system Do you have some other examples of this thesis?
1: Well, I think the most obvious is just how paranoid people are when they raise their children. So many children are not really allowed to play outside anymore. Everything they do is scheduled. There are schools where the game of tag has been banned for being too violent. And again, in the short run, you couldn't call this a major problem. But in the longer run, we're bringing up whole generations of Americans who simply assume they're going to be protected against risk of all sorts, and I think it's counterproductive. In the long run, it will end up increasing the risks we face. So, what would
0: you do if you were raising a kid to give them a nuanced view of the risks of reality, while also preventing them from some of the massive downsides? So, like, let's take tag as an example. You know, uh, I one time uh, fractured a tooth because I slipped, and I was sli- I slipped when I was playing tag, and I. Uh, chip my tooth against a railing. And that was not a great experience. and I can Im- imagine much more downside risk occurring where maybe my I break my neck because I'm playing tag. It seems like something that could be avoided while still giving children the proper understanding of downside risk.
1: I think some of risk is learned through experience. And again, allowing the game of tag to go forward is not exactly, you know, a major form of brutal violence. But when we're talking about, reigning in tag. I think, again, we're, we're raising generations of people, including millennials, that will be less willing to take risks in business, more afraid of failure. And collectively, they'll end up with less opportunity. So I would say, take your kid on some trips, take them to see different parts of this country or different parts of the world. You don't have to bring them to a war zone and uh, allow them more spontaneous play outside. You know, being a child in America has never, ever been safer than it is today. Software
0: is powering much of the increase in safety and security. And there are parts of our world where safety and security are undeniably good things. I can think of seatbelts. And if we had some electronic version of a seatbelt, maybe that's, I don't know, maybe it's encryption. We definitely want this kind of thing. But in this world of software-driven matching that you talk about. I think this ties into the safety and security because you you would probably argue that you have too much safety, too much security. You can just sit at your home. uh, Quote, the great adventures of life, the surprises of strangers and eclectic moments of happenstance and also of extreme ambition are slowly being removed by code as a path to a new contentment end quote. What is a strategy for putting more spontaneity back in our lives, whether we're children or adults? And why should we implement that strategy?
1: I would say, you know, start with little things. So don't use internet search for every decision you make. You know, like I vowed when I'm looking for a new restaurant, I'll actually go to an area and walk around rather than searching on Yelp. And, you know, I get it that in the short run, that's more costly But on the other hand, I get to walk more. I see more of my world. Uh, I I learn more about searching for restaurants and food. I just think I'm coming into contact with my physical environment in a way that's ultimately a little more liberating or will make me more creative than if I simply did everything through that Internet match. So I would say start small, do some small things, you know, see if you like it, then try some more. The
0: spontaneity that the Internet provides is okay these days. I mean, I log onto Facebook. Sometimes I see a little red notification icon. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's a a red notification icon from somebody I really admire that has liked something of mine and that appeals to me. And you can imagine a world in the future where there is as much spontaneity and excitement in our virtual world as there is in the real world. Uh, Do you anticipate? Hate feeling a, a, a sense of loss when that happens?
1: Well, I think there's different kinds of spontaneity. So today, you can be very spontaneous on the internet. You know, say you're listening to music. You can find some genre on Spotify or Pandora that you've never heard of, and all of a sudden, you know, you're loving this song. But everyone is doing it in separate ways, and it's not really mediated socially. So the notion of music as a social and revolutionary force It's actually much weaker today than it was several decades ago. So I wouldn't say that there's no spontaneity anymore, but it's more likely to lead to dead ends. You simply do something and it stops and not much comes of it. I think less likely to lead to actual risk-taking in the real physical world.
0: I think you actually see this in the creation of pop music. I think pop music is more and more people trying to jockey for local maxima as they attempt to climb up the charts. I don't know if you've listened to much contemporary pop music, but does that thesis resonate with you, with the idea that... Absolutely. Uh, are there any exceptions to musicians, to modern musicians, perhaps pop musicians, that people that are appealing to you, uniquely appealing?
1: Well, I would say today there are probably more good songs produced each year uh, than ever before. So it's not that musical talent has disappeared. That would be absurd. But here's the way I put it. If you go back to music of like the early to mid-90s, like take Alanis Morissette, and if you heard Alanis Morissette today, if you didn't already know the music, you could imagine it was music of today. But go back, say, to 1967, and imagine hearing the well-known music of 20 years earlier or even 10 years earlier. You could never think that was music of your time. So we've, on one hand, sort of given everybody a bit of everything, but at the same time, We've slowed down or in some cases even obliterated the idea of progress.
0: Does that idea of the slowdown, that I like that comparison. It's really compelling. Does that apply when you look at movies
1: or other forms of art? I would say movies actually have been getting worse. I wish that was just, you know, slowing down. So many top movies, they're tentpole franchises. They feel a bit like they're the same. They're mind-numbing. They're too long. They have too many explosions. Uh Arguably, American movies you know, peaked in maybe the 1970s, but I don't know anyone who thinks that they're peaking right now. And yet, we're a wealthier society. We have all these digital techniques, and we can't make better movies. Uh, from my point of view, that's a little depressing. Television, I would say, is clearly better, uh, but movies are going in reverse.
0: Well, when you look at something like House of Cards, House of Cards was arguably the result of hyper-aggressive matching because they looked at their viewership and said, okay, what can we make that will be beloved by everybody? And they ran it through their algorithms and they said, okay, something that's political with Kevin Spacey and they made it. And it turns out to be something that's com- almost completely unique. And although it is trying to copy, I think it's copying a, a UK show, but uh, I don't know. Do may, do you agree with this idea that even, but Netflix by attempting to copy so many different things in a hyper-aggressive copying strategy, ended up making something unique? Or are you not a House of Cards
1: fan? I like the British House of Cards better, actually. But I, I would make this more general point. I prefer a world where movies are great to a world where television is great. Even the very best shows, hardly anyone watches them 10 years later, and certainly not 20 years later. I think Seinfeld reruns are an exception, or maybe the best of I Love Lucy. But it's a fairly ephemeral product. There are fantastic movies from, from many decades ago that people watch and re-watch and become excited by. They're more of a social moving force than is television. Television is something you enjoy. It, it makes you complacent. You sit at home and then you watch the next show. So, you know, in terms of our broader culture, I don't think it's an entirely favorable trade-in to have gone from great movies to great TV.
0: What about a show like Black Mirror where every show, every episode is atomic?
1: Uh, I'm a big fan of Black Mirror. I think it's interesting to note, first, it comes from the United Kingdom, not this country. Second, it was made by BBC, which is actually a government. And third, (laughs) it hasn't really gotten that much traction in the United States. People like us watch it, Uh, but it's not what most television is about.
0: What's your favorite Black Mirror episode?
1: Oh, the one uh, where they punish the woman. She wakes up out of a kind of coma, and she doesn't know why there are people chasing her. I think it's season two, number five. And then it turns out she actually uh, was involved in a murder herself and this is how they're punishing her. It's just fantastic.
0: One of the most damaging trends with our obsession with predictability and safety and security is that we're being pushed towards a widespread treatment of psychiatric disorders with poorly understood medication. This medication doesn't really work uh, and it doesn't even get as much attention as the opioid problem. And for all we know, I mean, I'm not sure about this, but it might be even more widespread than the opioid problem. It's perhaps just more subtle because opioids so uh, completely destroy a person's life that it's more noticeable. Is there any chance of a war on prescription drugs in the foreseeable future in America?
1: Well, I certainly hope so or i hope at least we develop better prescription drugs which can ease our problems without always calming us down so much so there's an overdiagnosis of things such as you know ADHD which now is attributed to a remarkably high percentage of young boys the idea that young boys are simply restless and maybe don't want to sit in a classroom all day and do their homework all night is a notion somehow lost on our complacent society so just how quickly we resort to medication You know, the pharma company's happy, the doctor gets the patients, the the parents rather, out of his or her hair, the child is calmed down, the school system is happy. But I think in the longer run, again, it's a national catastrophe that we're calming everyone down in this way.
0: Is the desire to prescribe psychiatric drugs to our relatives, is that something that we do out of love for our relatives, or are we doing it out of better security for ourselves?
1: Well, both motives can operate. Obviously, there are people who very much do need psychiatric drugs, and I'm not trying to talk those people or their relatives out of doing it. But it does seem that at the margin, there are many cases where it simply seems to be the easiest way to solve a problem. Let's talk about millennials.
0: If you looked at the average millennials hierarchy of needs, how would it compare to the hierarchy of a Gen Xer?
1: Uh, Millennials seem less interested in ownership, less interested in driving cars. Uh, I think they're a very tolerant and actually kind generation, but they've grown up with a pretty sluggish labor market for for many of them, uh, often higher levels of student debt. And I think the overall level of ambition, uh, it may yet develop. It's not their fault, but I think overall ambition in the millennials is not so impressive.
0: Unless you're talking about the ambition of following uh, a recipe type of path to becoming an investment banker or a doctor or a lawyer, I guess you would say?
1: Uh, Yes, and even many people are not so interested in that. I would say this. The millennials are the generation obsessed with food. Uh, Earlier generations more often were obsessed with music. And music is more socially dynamic than food. Food, again, it induces a kind of complacency or, or lack of motion. Music, the inclination is to get up and do something with a group of people. So we've switched from music to food as being culturally central, uh, and I think that's somewhat of a loss. But just to be clear, I don't want to blame millennials. Uh, I think the problem is the environment they have grown up in, not like the millennials as individuals.
0: You quote, say, millennials are not such an entrepreneurial class. The share of Americans under 30 who own a business has fallen by about 65% since the 1980s. So I found that statistic shocking because from my point of view, entrepreneurship has become easier in in contrast to the direction of this trend. Why are millennials so disengaged from entrepreneurship?
1: Well, I'm not sure it has become easier in every way. There are more different things you need to learn. There are more chain stores to compete against. What the best companies do, they actually do so very well. Uh, There's more industrial concentration, somewhat of an increase in monopoly, as I document in the book. So I don't think it's just that millennials are dispirited. Uh, Some of that has happened due to the financial crisis and the Great Recession. But I think the environment they're in is genuinely a harder one to succeed in. And uh, the consumers they're trying to sell to are, on the whole, actually more complacent. You've got to beat Facebook is another way to put it. Facebook is pretty good uh, not everyone can create a product that beats spending more time with Facebook.
0: You must have interacted with a lot of millennial students over the years. Uh, now that we have made something of a bear case for the millennials, uh, what's the bull case? You mentioned uh, compassion, I think. Uh, what are some other desirable attributes that you see in millennials?
1: Uh, over-generalizing, of course, but I think tolerance and love of peace – And they actually believe that it's possible to have a world where there's very little bigotry and prejudice. And those are major advances. And I see them much more in the millennials than in any earlier generation. So I'm, you know, fairly bullish on that set of issues. And I would give millennials a lot of the credit.
0: So among the people who were civil, you know, civil rights advocates, for example, in previous generations, were these people who did not necessarily believe in this widespread equality?
1: Uh, those individuals did. But I think the reception they met from the rest of America was decidedly mixed. And today, I feel there's a critical mass of young people, middle class to upper middle class young people, who just absolutely, resolutely, no matter what the group, not just for African Americans, but for gay people or transgender or whatever else, they're genuinely tolerant, much more than when I was growing up.
0: Is there any sign that the generation that is following millennials, this is often referred to as Gen Z, will be any less complacent?
1: Uh, We don't see any signs yet. Obviously, it's very early to tell. But I think there's also a good chance that they grow up in a more chaotic America. I do see some signs that the previous state of affairs is in some ways coming apart at the seams. And if the next generation is growing up in those chaotic times, that will give them a very different worldview.
0: Many Americans feel that the discourse in America has turned toxic and polarized, but as you say, quote, the harsh exchanges across different points of view mask an underlying rigidity and complacency, end quote. Explain why both polls of this modern political discourse that has become so toxic, these polls actually both represent the complacency position.
1: Well, if you look at American politics in many regards, which you see on the evening news every night, it is more polarized. But if you just ask Americans, what should we do with the federal budget, there's probably never been greater agreement. More and more of the budget is entitlements, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. Most Americans actually support those programs at something not so far from current levels. And I think we have a politics where people argue heatedly over symbolic issues But what our government does hardly changes. And we had not too long ago Democrats controlling all branches of government. We now have Republicans controlling all branches of government. And uh, I've predicted the Trump administration actually won't succeed in getting much change through. The people out there don't really want it.
0: From this vantage point, you talk about the students who rioted in response to appearances by Milo Yiannopoulos and Charles Murray. And you suggest that the students at these schools wanted a safe space where they could be sheltered from these ideas, these ideas of Milo and Charles Murray. But speaking as a millennial myself, I I don't think that these students were actually afraid of having a sophisticated discussion with Milo. I think that, as you said, millennials and Gen Zers, they look at the amount of prejudice and sexism that still exists in the world, and they say, okay, something is wrong here. We're we're not moving towards equal opportunity fast enough. We aren't necessarily going to reject the ideas of Charles, Charles Murray. We're not rejecting the ideas of Milo. But we are so fed up with the institutional problems that we're going to just steamroll people like Milo or Charles Murray— even if we're just doing this as scape, like we're scapegoating them, because the cause is so important to us that we're willing to scapegoat these people and su- suppress their uh, free speech, because it's causing so many people so much pain. It's undermining the health of our society. It's undermining the productivity of our society. It's not just social justice warriors, uh, you know, that are trying to 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 create a safe space. Uh, why? You know, am I misinterpreting you or why don't you give the benefit of the doubt uh, to these students for having a well-reasoned position rather than labeling them as kind of safe space-seeking, security-obsessed millennials?
1: Well, I think a lot of what students are doing is counterproductive. So if you take Charles Murray and just ask the simple question, how many of those students had even read some Charles Murray? I think it's a very low percentage. Uh, I heard Charles Murray give the talk that he was about to give at Middlebury before uh, you know, the, the incident began. And basically, the talk involves a lot of concern about income inequality. And at the end, he calls for a universal basic income. Now, one may or may not agree with that uh, set of claims. But I think you know there's so much of middle America that feels political correctness has gone too far. And the more open and engaging style Uh, You know, based on an ideal of free speech, as we saw, say, in the late 1960s, I think that will actually be healthier for the country.
0: Speaking of these institutional problems, you draw a relationship between the reemergence of American segregation and complacency. And you find that the most segregated area in the United States is actually Austin, Texas and I grew up in Austin. I spent 23 years there. I know that Austinites like to see themselves as integrated, as open-minded, as forward-thinking. How does your ethnography of Austin compare to what Austinites would like to believe?
1: Well, I think what Austinites would like to believe is entirely correct, that on, on the whole they are, you know, forward-thinking and open-minded, but you have in Austin an extreme degree of gentrification, And gentrification prices out a lot of individuals, and it's made Austin in that regard a much more segregated place. And it's not just Austin. You see this in Brooklyn, you see it in Manhattan, you see it in San Francisco, uh, many parts of this country. So although people are, on the whole, less racist than before, we see so many markers of segregation going up. And that is the paradox that when each individual just tries to be nice and maybe do something for his or her children... Uh, the net result is this greater split into groups of high and low income.
0: As I was reading your section about Austin, I was thinking about my uh, all of the time I've spent in Austin, uh, and my perspective is that Austin has a unique brand of complacency uh, that's kind of confused, and it's epitomized by this slogan. Maybe you've seen it if you have spent time in Austin. It's a slogan: "Keep Austin Weird." And if you spent, if you, okay, you have seen it. So. You see the slogan on bumper stickers. It's on t-shirts. It's on, uh, you know, those marketing newsstands in the airport. And I think that the idea of keeping Austin weird is, it's oxymoronic because in order to avoid complacency, if, if we're trying to be weird, that means we have to continually expose ourselves to change. And the way that Austin tries to keep itself weird is typically by celebrating the same mediocre restaurants, enjoying the traffic and the bad public transportation. Uh, What are some other examples of urban city standardized complacency that you have seen in the United States?
1: Well, San Francisco is maybe the most extreme. Just on the Austin slogan, I think I wrote a blog post on that last time I was in Austin. A place that's really weird doesn't need that slogan. The very notion that it's market (laughs) used at the airport suggests the place isn't that weird anymore. Uh, It's hard for places to stay weird when individuals who have some wealth can buy up property and improve it. Uh, That's the fundamental dynamic. If you look at movies of New York, say, even as recently in the 1990s, so many parts of it were unrecognizable. But that was also a time when artists, musicians, punk musicians – Andy Warhol before he earned a lot of money, you know, live there and be very creative. And New York City has itself become much more boring these days. It's a much more pleasant and safer place at the same time.
0: So you see this kind of thing in restaurants that Anthony Bourdain visits in remote areas where suddenly the small noodle shop that he visits is featured on his show and then it becomes super popular and it sort of ruins the uh, uniqueness of it. Yeah, you see this happen with social networks online. For example, I saw this with, to some degree, with Quora, where Quora had early on a small core group of people that were on the site and it created a kind of kitschy, weird social network. Is it impossible to scale
1: weirdness? It's very, very difficult. Hiddenness is hard to scale. It's much harder to have hiddenness and surprise and secrets in today's world. Everything is much more transparent. That leads to the sufficiency and matching. But there's also this impoverishing effect. And places discovered by Bourdain uh, or others, or you know, they end up getting ruined because everyone goes there and all of a sudden then the owners are cooking for a more general taste rather than, say, the tastes of their next door neighbors. So we haven't really managed to scale weirdness or hiddenness.
0: In writing about China, you describe a class of billionaires, such as Jack Ma, who went from rags to riches. In America, there are plenty of places where people grow up in poverty. Why don't we have triumphant rags to riches stories in America these days?
1: Well, we do have many, but keep in mind, a lot of them have to do with immigrants. And I would say immigrants are the class of people who are least complacent in contemporary American society. But I think one thing that's special about China is just how much undiscovered talent there has been. So you can be from the Chinese countryside and, you know, be a genius. And maybe your father was just a local peddler. In the United States, if you're, you know, running in your family, if there was that much talent, probably it would have been discovered already. And we have more cases like Bill Gates, who earned much, much more than his father, but He came from, you know, a really smart upper middle class family. There's nothing that surprising about the Bill Gates story.
0: In writing about your model of American stasis, you say that we must, sorry, the stasis that we are in must eventually fall apart. Why is this? Why can't we trend towards ever more complacency?
1: Maybe some countries can do that. Maybe Denmark can do that. Countries that are built small and have a high degree of consensus and less diversity than the United States. Uh, But the United States, it's like a big hedge fund. It's it's built on a lot of leverage. Uh, We don't save that much of our money. We're always hoping that tomorrow's creativity pays today's bills. Uh, So debt is one reason why we can't just stay complacent. But I think also what's happened to our politics as we move to a a zero-sum world, we're fighting over a fixed pie rather than a growing pie. And I think it's made our politics much nastier and also dysfunctional.
0: Quote, America declines in the sense that it is losing the ability to regenerate itself in the ways it did previously. End quote. What is needed to make America regenerative again?
1: I don't think we're going to manage it by turning around the current ship. We've had many chances to do that. People don't seem that interested. So there's a lot of different policies we could talk about or we can talk about if you'd like. But I think the more important question is, why why is the world not more interested? You know, why did we just elect a president who, say, is always talking about the past and not so much looking forward? So I think the most likely scenario is this country has a crisis of some sort, and we do eventually recover our dynamism, simply as risk is forced on people. At some point, there'll be no way of hiding from the risk. And people will start taking some risks to avoid even greater risks. But in terms of the complacent path we're on, I really don't see us leaving it.
0: Do you have an idea for what the falling apart of our current complacent state will look like?
1: Well, there's three different scenarios I talk about in the book. Uh, One of them is simply debt catches up to us. To some extent, that's part of what happened with the financial crisis. Another one is there's some kind of foreign crisis that we don't have the flexibility to respond to. Uh, The most likely, it seems, is just the quality of our own governance becoming worse and more about arguing over a fixed pie, more zero-sum thinking, more crony capitalism, and less actual progress moving the ball forward. And I think we're living through that right now. So, you know, when I started writing the book, I thought, well, a a crack-up of that sort, it's maybe, you know, five or ten years away. But it turns out, uh, you know, right here and now we're going through it.
0: In your podcast conversations with Tyler, you have a session, uh, sorry, a section called overrated, underrated. So I decided to copy that and uh, do that for our, uh, the rest of the the episode. So let's do overrated, underrated video games.
1: Uh, I don't play video games, so I'm not sure I'm a good judge of how overrated or underrated they are. I do know there's some very good economic research suggesting that video games have increased unemployment and just kept people busy at home. So I'll have to say they're overrated.
0: What about video games as an analgesic?
1: Well, that's exactly why they're overrated. Uh, There's something to be said for suffering a certain amount of pain, and if you use video games to obliterate that, I think that's part of the problem. The idea of Oprah as president. I don't know what she (laughs) would be like, but my sense is one thing we're learning from Trump, is that having a professional politician really is important. So understanding in great detail how Congress works, how you push on the levers to get a bill through, uh, that's extremely important. The right way of dealing with the media. Trump, you know, he's certainly used to dealing with the media. He's been on TV for decades, but he's not used to dealing with the media as president. Uh, So my guess is, in general, the notion of non-professional politicians being president is somewhat overrated, no slight to Oprah intended. Could you
0: imagine a world where she becomes president and then she's just a supreme coach and it turns out that what we needed all along was a great teacher slash coach as our president?
1: I can imagine such a world. She would have more of a chairman of the board kind of role and she then would need a vice president who in essence would be like a COO and drive change forward. That's possible. I think it's very hard for the actual elected president to know his or her role in exactly the right way, but that's exactly what the positive scenario would look like.
0: Museums.
1: There are many different kinds of museums. Uh, Art museums, I think, are still underrated. To me, the most striking fact about art museums is typically they only put out 10% or 5% of the art they own. And furthermore, there are huge parts of the museum with simply empty walls. This suggests people go to museums, you know, for social reasons or because they think they're supposed to. And thus they're actually underrating the art itself.
0: Getting six to eight hours of sleep each night.
1: Uh, Underrated, But I would stress seven to eight. I don't think six is enough for most people. Uh, There's an increasing body of evidence that not sleeping enough hours or sleeping deeply enough is implicated in just about every other illness we know, uh, including Alzheimer's. And a lot of people just don't uh, get enough good sleep. Underrated.
0: Were you surprised by the articles that came out about Obama being a, quote, night owl or kind of? aggrandizing his uh, low amount of average sleep each night?
1: Uh, I was, but I think, you know, later in his life, he may pay a price for that. Now, if there's anyone you want to see make that trade-off, it's the president. So how much he gets done in those years, that is especially important. Most of us are not in that kind of position. Margaret Thatcher, as you may know, is the same way. She just didn't sleep that much.
0: Long-form written content.
1: Well, it's a funny way to describe it. You know, we used to call it books. Now the phrase usually means like long journalistic articles of a certain length. But most of the world's knowledge is contained in books and uh, reading has proven robust. But still, I think books are underrated. Possibly the median American last year didn't even read a single book.
0: Long-form video content.
1: Documentaries are underrated, if that's what you mean. We're living in a kind of golden age of the documentary. It's one area where cinematic creativity has been high. Uh... You know, if I had my way, I would be seeing those documentaries have an even larger place in our movie theaters. Planet Earth 2 is coming out, I believe, March 27th. I'm eagerly looking forward to my copy. I'll watch it on TV rather than, you know, video through YouTube. But I expect it very much to be wonderful. So still underrated.
0: Were you surprised? You did an interview with Malcolm Gladwell recently in in your podcast. And by the way, I recommend everybody who's listening to this who likes, who's still with us should check out Conversations with Tyler. Were you surprised that he said he doesn't watch
1: movies? I was surprised. uh, But obviously, he's a very busy man, and he specialized in other forms. And he knows a great deal about science and social science and history. And if something's got to go, maybe movies is it. So I actually found that admirable, that he had the self-discipline to just make that decision and stick with it.
0: And he's got a great podcast as well, Revisionist History. Uh, Do you feel that his show perhaps exposes the fact that podcasts are a very unexplored area of art?
1: Uh, They're underexplored, but they're being explored very rapidly. So they're podcasts increasing at a a very fast pace. And uh, the problem, if that's the word to use with podcasts, is you can only listen to a small percentage of the total. With books, you know, you might read faster than other people and thus be able to read more. You can turn a podcast to 1.5x, but for the most part, you know, the speed you get is all, all you're going to extract from it. And actually, I find that a little frustrating. There's much, much more in podcasting than any person can ever have a sense of. So that means underrated. Right. Okay.
0: The idea of Mark Zuckerberg as a president.
1: Uh, we don't know that much about Mark Zuckerberg's political views. Uh, I think there's a reasonable chance he'd make a good president. Uh, Would he approach it with the right humility and hire the right expertise? Well, he's done that in other areas he's operated in. So uh, I would at least have an open mind about the prospect. Uh, I think uh, most younger people would. My sense is older generations are likely to be suspicious.
0: The idea of Google as a force of good rather than evil.
1: I think Google has been an amazing force for good and they've done remarkably little evil. The striking thing is how many other innovations they've helped pioneer, driverless cars is one, but even something as simple as watching video online without all that buffering that you used to have to have, Google put a lot of money into YouTube, uh, helped make that possible. Google Glass, in my view, was a failure, but someone's going to make it work, and that will have been an important stepping stone. So I say way underrated.
0: Do you think of Google as an instrument for matching, or is it a force against matching?
1: It's both at the same time. What is their net effect? I'm not sure. Uh, but again, Google, since the beginning, it's much more than just search. And it's very interesting, I find, that a lot of their later innovations, they do not spring organically out of search. Part of Google's innovation is to have a new kind of company that can produce innovations of many different kinds. Gmail as well. Still free. Grand American projects. Underrated. Uh, one of them has been the smartphone, which has been wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, another one we did that was a disaster was trying to set the Middle East straight, for instance, through the war in Iraq. Uh, that went very, very badly. So we're, you know, we're, we're gun shy, so to speak, and we're off the idea of major projects. But, you know, we need clean energy. Uh, we need to upgrade the power grid. Uh, we need to fix education in a very fundamental way, make health care cheaper. We need to tackle new grand projects, very much underrated. Okay, just a few more.
0: Info-voraciousness. Oh,
1: sorry, I didn't hear that.
0: Uh, oh, it's, a, it's not actually a real word, but uh, inf- you
1: described the infovore. Oh, infovor. so said, inf- underrated, of course. They're people who love information. <laughs> and the one group that has benefited immensely from all this uh, <clears throat> specialization in tech advances are the infovores. So academics, journalists, voracious readers, we're way, way better off because of the internet, much more than the average person.
0: Now, is that because we are able to leverage these matching tools rather than be completely guided by them?
1: We can leverage them, but also we simply enjoy information for its own sake. Have you ever sat down and just spent a few hours reading Wikipedia? It can be great. <laughs> if if all the internet is to you is you enjoy Facebook slightly more than the old network television, I mean, that's fine, but you're not gaining that much. If you love reading Wikipedia for a few hours running... Uh, you're much better off due to this new world.
0: Do you think more people are becoming Infovores?
1: Yes, because the return to being an Infovore has gone up. The supply curve is elastic.
0: All right. Last overrated, underrated, Twitter?
1: I actually think it's underrated. So people focus on Twitter as a company and how profitable that is. is is hard for me to judge. But Twitter has helped drive social change uh, in Iran, I think Twitter is not behind the polarization of our politics. There's some new research uh, helping to show that. Twitter is a fantastically effective way for Infovores to dip a toe into the stream and see what the whole world is serving up that day. So I say way underrated.
0: Do you listen back to your own podcast episodes?
1: No, I do not. I'm afraid I would sound too weird and become too hesitant.
0: Well, I guess it's one way to pro- to uh, prolong your spontaneity. Um... Okay, my last question, uh, which author is having the most influence on your work these days?
1: I would say my Twitter feed, more than a single author. I don't think overall we live in a time of authors, in the sense that the 1920s, you had Franz Kafka, Thomas Mann, Marcel Proust, James Joyce. You know, that was a decade for authors, arguably also the 1960s. So this is a uh, weaving together a stream and a synthesis, and it's about your implicit mental algorithms. And that's like the actual author today. So uh, I would say notion of the author has been downgraded somewhat. Tyler,
0: thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been extremely rewarding to have the chance to interview you, and your books have been really influential on me.
1: Oh, thank you. And thank you for reading so carefully. Thanks. Take care. Wow.